The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, remain standing for the reading of God's Word, if you will, and turn in your uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, reading from verse 43 to 48, continuing uh, to work through the Gospel of Matthew week by week. Matthew 5, verse 43. This is the word of God. Let's give our diligent attention to it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, as we come now to your word and as we have entered your presence, we have a clear and manifest need of your Spirit's work in our lives. We readily confess, without you we can do nothing. And so we desire to hear from you now, Lord, that you would feed us with the bread of life, feed us with Christ himself, And may we be conformed to his image that we may be sons and daughters of you, our Father who is in heaven. Receive all glory from us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, what do you think about your enemies? What do you think about your enemies. It's not a simple matter, is it, as we read Scripture? Because <clears throat> we acknowledge we are at times uh, called to sing and to pray for the overthrow and the destruction of God's enemies. Uh, we're also, as we're told in this passage, to love and pray for our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. What then is the Christian attitude towards? the enemy, towards those who oppose us. It goes without saying that our attitude ought to be like our Lord's attitude, indeed like our Heavenly Father's attitude even to us while we were sinners. You see, if our attitude to our enemies is wrong, it might reveal that our attitude towards God is equally wrong. Here our Lord calls the Christian to a holy view, a holy view of their enemies. And ultimately, we're called, as we read there in verse 48, to the standard of perfection. As our Lord closes this section on law-keeping, he says, you, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The issue then before us is how we view our enemies, indeed, how we view our friends, And the passage is laid out before us in a similar way as the previous sections. Uh, There is a problem presented. That's the Jews' view of their enemies. 
There is a principle stated, uh, our Lord's view of, of the enemy, and that final application then in verse 48, how we are to conduct ourselves. Let's think then about how we are to view our enemies by examining what the Jews of our Lord's day thought of their enemies. We read there in verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We ought to acknowledge that for the Jews especially, the concept of the enemy was a real, real concept. Uh, They'd been subjected to invasion, killings, uh, thwarting the process of the covenant people right throughout their history. And we also acknowledge at times in their life as a nation, they were commanded to engage in holy war. They were called at times to devote the nations round about them to destruction. And that might sound hard for us to hear, but you yourselves, if you've been in this church any length of time, you've sung psalms which also call for the same thing. There's a whole genre of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. An imprecation is calling down God's judgment and curse upon his enemies. Psalm 2 verse 9, Christ shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Suffice to say, our attitude towards our enemy is a complex one. The Jews knew well their enemies, from the Egyptians to the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and now in their time, the Romans. If any nation had reason to hate their enemies, it was the Jews, the Israelites. Notwithstanding this reality, nowhere in Scripture do we find the words, you shall love your enemy and hate Sorry, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere in scripture do we find those words. What is going on here appears to be a scribal addition to the law. We've spoken in weeks past of the oral tradition of the elders passed down from generation to generation, a commentary they made on the law of God, and this appears to be not from scripture, but from their commentary. Uh, Certainly we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the community called the Essenes, we read this, you shall love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. This idea of hating enemies clearly became part of Jewish life. And it's that idea that our Lord is taking issue with here. Previously, he's taken issue with a misinterpretation of the law as stated. Here, he's taking issue with a misrepresentation, a complete misstatement of the law of God. This is not part of biblical law. It's extra-biblical writing and material. The problem gets even more difficult, how we should think of our enemies, when we consider the similar question, who is my friend? Or who is my neighbor? We see this matter come up in the Gospels elsewhere. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. A lawyer comes to test our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not sincerely searching for Christ. He's coming to test him, we we read. He asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? And he gives the summary of the law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and so on, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's correct. Go and do it. But then we read this. He 
desiring to justify himself, said, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? You see what our Lord had called him to do? Our Lord had called him to a full commitment to loving God and his neighbor. The lawyer doesn't like the answer, and so he says, Well, who is my neighbor? He's trying to worm his way out of the requirements of the law of God. You see, the law of God told him, love your neighbor. He didn't like it. It's too far reaching, too demanding. It required too much of him. And so Christ tells the parable of the good Samaritan. The Levite passes by the injured man. The priest passes by the injured man. And a Samaritan, the hated, despised Samaritan, comes along and proves himself to be the neighbor by showing mercy to the injured man. Jesus said the Samaritan was the neighbor in this case. You see, that's what the law of God taught, Leviticus 19.18 You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the lawyer and the Jews, in order to reduce the demand and requirement of the law of God upon them, had not only diluted the law, but thoroughly corrupted it. And so they were giving themselves legal license to hate anyone, to hate anyone who was not on their list of friends or neighbors. You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. The law for the Jews, you see, had become self-defining, self-regulating. In other words, they had reinterpreted the law or changed the law to suit themselves. Who was their neighbor? Our Lord taught them in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And there are plenty of examples in the Gospels, even from Christ's own disciples, where they displayed this discriminatory, hateful attitude. The disciple that said, can anything good come from Nazareth? All the disciples, when they found Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, they said, what are you talking to her for? That's what's behind, or those are examples, rather, of this attitude. In short, friends, the problem of the Jews was that they disliked, indeed they hated anyone who did not live up to their standards. Whether it was in economic status whether it's people in certain professions, people with questionable reputations, people because of their nationality. The Jews' standard of law-keeping gave them license to hate anyone that didn't measure up. And friends, we ought not imagine that that problem is all that far away from us. It's not all that far away from us. Perhaps you've experienced this in your own life either on the receiving end or as one who gives and shows such behavior. Even a regenerate heart can fall foul of this kind of conduct. Are you someone who is constantly measuring up other people according to your own standard? 
Are they like me? Do they meet what I think is the law of God? Are they this kind of person or that kind of person? Or I've heard a bad report of them. That gives me license to think ill of them. Do we act and treat people differently because they're from a different socioeconomic class to us? Do we act and think differently about people because of the color of their skin or even because of their denominational background? The law of God stipulates the principle positively, not negatively. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that does not give the Jews or us as Christians opportunity then to define our long list of enemies and grant us liberty and license to hate them. That's to turn the law stated positively upside down that was the jews problem they wanted license to sin what does our lord think of that kind of behavior he tells us there in verses 44 through to verse 47 our lord's view of the enemy first of all we ought to note thinking back to the good samaritan uh, a parable. The Good Samaritan was the neighbor. He was the one who showed mercy to the injured man. And when our Lord said it was the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan that was the one who was on the friends list, he was the one who was the neighbor, that really blows apart the idea of the Jews that they had this stipulated list of friends and stipulated list of enemies. After all, if a Samaritan could get on Jesus' good list as it were. Anyone could. He was the one who showed mercy, regardless of his nationality or where he was from. And if that was true about the Samaritan, then the Jews needed to change their understanding of their enemies and their friends. Notice it's very important what our Lord says here. Our Lord is not saying, have no enemies. Our Lord's not saying that. Jesus acknowledged he would have enemies. He knew he was hated. He said, I'm hated. They'll hate you also because they hated me. He simply says, first of all, be discerning in who you think your enemies are. And secondly, where possible, do not treat them as enemies. Be discerning as to who your real enemies are. And secondly, where possible, do not treat them as such Our Lord's command to his disciples are twofold here in verse 44. The first command is this, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. It's a staggering statement, isn't it? Love those who are diametrically opposed to you, who want what is ill and evil for you. Love the one who hates you, he says. It's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? Certainly counter-cultural. Now, we need to be clear, as we have with all these laws, this is not a statement which overrides every other statement in the law of God. The law of God requires protection of self and protection of others. For example, if an enemy burst into this room now uh, with a weapon uh, to attack us, you can be sure that certain people in this room would take action to stop them. There is clearly a a principle of protecting self and others. And our Lord's teaching here does not contradict the law of God, far from it. 
but he speaks of a different situation. The Jews' hatred, the Jews' hatred of their enemies was all-encompassing. It wasn't limited to simply those moments of grave danger, of which our Lord has spoken in the previous verses, by the way. Their hatred was in moments of no threat. Their hatred was manifest in their daily dealings, their conversations, their thoughts, their associations. But the law of God stated otherwise. Even the stranger within the gate, the foreigner, Leviticus 19.34, the Jews were told them, love them as yourself. The foreigner who dwelt in the midst yet was still a foreigner, love them as yourself. Jesus showed this, this idea of who should be the enemy and who should be the neighbor when he told the Good Samaritan, when he ate with tax collectors and sinners, when he died on the cross to save sinners. And such were we, enemies before friends. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6.10 says, Do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Our Lord is teaching us that even with our enemies, we ought to have a neighborly disposition towards them. And that is a disposition of love. John Calvin writing on this passage, tying this passage and verse 38 into this passage, says this, This single point includes the whole of the former doctrine, love your neighbor as yourself. For he who shall bring his mind to love those who hate him will naturally refrain from all revenge, will patiently endure evils, will be much more prone uh, to assist the wretched. Christ presents to us in a review the way and manner of fulfilling this precept you shall love your neighbor as yourself we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves we are to love our enemy also in similar fashion the second command our lord gives which goes with love is prayer love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you when i was at seminary i was with there with a group of young men who thought that when our lord said pray for your enemies the thing that they ought and only ought to be doing in prayer for their enemies is praying for their destruction i was scratching my head thinking these guys only ever pray for their enemies destruction i've never once heard them pray for the conversion of their enemies what a strange thing I don't think when our Lord says pray for your enemies, he's saying pray imprecatory prayers against them. Now that may need to happen. That may need to happen. But surely imprecations against God's enemies surely come after pleas for God's mercy for them. How can it be that we who are natively God's enemies and have been shown so much mercy and grace by Almighty God, could then jump immediately to praying for the overthrow and destruction of God's enemies. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. We of all people who were enemies and are now friends, who were aliens and are now family members of Almighty God, ought to be praying for the conversion of God's enemies. And that's what we pray from this pulpit. We pray that God's enemies will be overthrown either by the gospel and they're delivered from it or by whatever means God uses. 
Luther wrote wonderfully, my reply to someone else's hate or envy, slander or persecution should not be more hatred and more persecution, more slander and more curses, but rather my love and help, my blessings and my prayers. That's our first calling when it comes to our enemies. Don't misunderstand me. There is a time and place to call on Almighty God for the overthrow of his enemies. And if if necessary to be done by whatever means he so chooses, let's ensure that we've first prayed for the salvation of those who oppose us. Friends, this is a great challenge to our faith. Because it's very easy to do what the Jews did, to have our nice list of friends who we get on with and they say hello to us and we say hello to them. And then we can have our list of enemies. And frequently what we can do is import from our list of friends and put them on our list of enemies because we don't like them. Or they've done something to offend us. Friends, our Lord is calling, to, calling us to regulate our passions to be very careful in the way we think about our friends and our enemies. And in fact, there's a leveling out, whatever list somebody may be on. Love your neighbor as yourself, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. You'll notice the commands are not identical. Love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies. There's a difference, but there's a great similarity. Love everyone. Love everyone. We don't need to treat our enemies without mercy or grace. Our desire for vindication, even for revenge, as our Lord dealt with in verse 38, can replace our love and our prayers for our enemy. That's a bad place to be, friends. That's a bad place to be. Our Lord speaks to these matter in these ways. He says in the previous verses, you don't always need to insist on your rights. Do not resist the evil one, he says. Pray for those who persecute you. Persecute you. And our Lord adds a, a telling statement about the motivation both for the hatred of enemies and the love for enemies in verse 45. He says, love your enemies, pray for them so that... Notice the purpose clause. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That is to say, those who are children of God conduct themselves in a godly fashion, God-like fashion, after the manner of God. The goodness of God, he says, brings the sun to rise on the good and the evil alike and rain to fall on the good and the evil alike. Why does God pour out goodness on the good and the evil? And some would say, well, it's just to pour hot coals on the head of the evil. That's true, but it's not the first answer we ought to give. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Every moment of God's goodness manifest upon the wicked, every moment of God's kindness manifest upon the wicked is designed to lead them to repentance. It's designed to lead us to repentance also as Christians. That is to say, dear friends, by God's goodness, 
some have been brought to repentance. Can we not say the same for Christians also? Think back to Matthew 5:14. Let your light so shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Our attitude towards our enemies might just be instrumental in them being saved. That's how important this is. To be a Christian is to be in Christ's kingdom and to love and to live as Christ did towards his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To be sure, friends, there is a time for judgment on earth, and there's certainly a time for judgment at the end of time. But if Christ, the perfectly righteous, the God-man, with all rights to judgment and to stand on his own rights, if he could say of his enemies, Father, forgive them, how much ought we, dear friends, riddled with sin of our own, how much more ought we to have a merciful, loving disposition to those who withstand us? What great evangelistic opportunities exist if we have a righteous, holy, and loving attitude towards our enemies in the way that our Lord is speaking of here. And to summarize this whole teaching, and indeed to summarize the whole of the teaching from verse 17 onwards, our Lord makes this final application, verse 48. Final application. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do we hear that, friends? There is a command and a call to be perfect. This is the language of righteousness. Perfection is related to righteousness. We are to be righteous in all our dealings, righteous in all our doings. Not righteous according to the standard of man, but righteous according to the standard of God. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's a reason why we are to be perfect. And it's not just practical. There's a salvation reason. The end of the sermon, we read this. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's the language of righteousness. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's the language of unrighteousness. This is not just a practical way of speaking the standard of how we must live, though it is that. It points us to salvation itself. And we're thinking, who then can be perfect? Who then can be righteous? Who then can live up to this standard? Not one of you, not me, not anyone. There's only one who did it, Christ. I want to speak to any here today who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you think you're surrounded by Christians who, who, who think better of themselves than they ought. Well, you're probably right in that. 
But, but don't think you're surrounded by people who, if they know themselves in any serious way, think that they are perfect or righteous in their own doing or sinless in their own right. If, if we're real Christians, the one thing we know better than anything else is our imperfection, is it not? Our native unrighteousness, is it not? Our need for a saviour, is it not? We know this to be experientially true. There's not a minute of a single day that doesn't pass whereby we have sinned against God. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ here today, I want to tell you this. It is not by the labors of your hands, the righteousness that you can muster, which is no righteousness by which you are saved. It's by the righteousness of Christ that our Lord Jesus Christ By his life of perfect, sinless obedience, perfect righteousness, he has granted a way by which we may be saved. And that way is this. He went to the cross in place of his people. The cross is the punishment for sin, death. And by dying on the cross, dear friend, hear this. He died for the sins of his people. And his life of perfect righteousness is granted to the Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That can be yours, dear friend. And all you need to do is believe. Can't work your way into it. Can't seek to come to justify yourself like the, the lawyer of Luke 10. Be justified how? By, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Friends, that's a good reminder to all of us, is it not? That as Christians, if we're biblical Christians, we know this. It is God who has saved us, not we ourselves. Salvation, as Jonah writes, belongs to the Lord and he dispenses it as he chooses. And the wonderful truth is this. When we are saved... It is not just a status change, as in we've been removed from being an enemy to being a neighbor, a friend of God. We've been removed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God has done something with us internally. He's changed us. It's the doctrine of regeneration and the doctrine of sanctification by which your affections have been changed and are being changed. That is to say, friends, you no longer desire the evil as you once did. You desire what is righteous. That's why, friends, you can love your enemies. That's why you can, verse 38, have a merciful disposition to those who persecute you. That's why, verse 33, when you take oaths and vows, you can be sincere in them and keep them. It's why, verse 31, you can guard your hearts in your marriage contract. Verse 27, you can guard your eyes and your ears against the lusts of the flesh. Verse 21, you can regulate your anger so you are not guilty of murder, and so on. That's what's being done for and is being done in the Christian. It is happening. And sometimes it's mighty slow progress. We understand that. The Lord knows it better than us. But for the Christian, we are growing in grace. Slow and steady wins the race. Slow growth, continual growth, is the kind of growth which Scripture speaks of in sanctification. 
And we will never be perfect enough to be perfect like our Father in heaven. But there is a day coming, friends, when we will be perfect. We will be perfect in holiness and perfect in righteousness. We'll be clothed in robes of righteousness given to us by God himself. He will have put a crown of glory upon our head and we will hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's great motivation for us now, to live like our Lord, even to love our enemies like our Lord. Let's pray. Great God, we honor your name and bless you for your word. Father, we confess with brokenheartedness how far short we fall of the mark. Lord, forgive us our sins. Help us as we confessed even this day. Help us to do what we have not done, that we might love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, be merciful to us. To any here without faith this day, we plead with you for mercy and forgiveness. For those of us of weak faith, we pray that you would build us up. Strengthen us all, Lord God, that we might do what is pleasing in your sight. For we ask this in the precious name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.